1: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. And welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Thanks, Carl. Front and center this hour, the peak inflation rally, where it went and why some say a deeper pullback in stocks is still likely. We'll debate that with the investment committee joining me for the hour today. Jenny Harrington, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, Pete Nigerian, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's go to the wall. 12 noon in the east. There's stocks right now. We're red across the board. There's bond yields, though. 284. That is what the 10-year is now yielding. Joe, I'm serious. What happened to this peak inflation rally? I mean, I, I thought the PPI came out. The market was like, all right, this is as bad as it's going to be. Stocks totally rallied. Mm -hmm. Then Thursday came, and we didn't have any follow-through. And then Friday was a holiday, and here we are. What happened?
2: Since the inflation report, the price of natural gas is up 23%. The price of oil is up 10%. The price of cotton is up 9%. The price of wheat is up 7%. So we have commodities that are reaching decade highs corn eight dollars highest level since 2012 natural gas approaching eight dollars peak inflation
1: doesn't look like it to me yeah i mean there's nat gas as we said uh yet another great call from mark fisher who came on a couple of times and told you nat gas was going higher um, jenny are, are we done with the the peak inflation move i mean we Sort of started to hang our hats on that in thinking that the market could go higher. I remember Tom Lee was on with me in overtime, I think that very day, suggesting lows are in. This is fine. Remember Scott Minard last week? Inflation's peaking, stocks can go higher, Fed gets more hawkish, I get more bullish. Is that gone?
3: Well, let's say it has peaked. And my my guess, my money would be on that we have seen peaks. But that doesn't mean that inflation doesn't sustain at an abnormally, and I mean abnormal for the past couple decades of our two to three percent range. But let's say it peak, let's say it sustains at a rate of five to six percent, four to five percent. What happens then? So let's say this eight and a half percent fine peak that's over, but it sustains at five to six percent. You know what happens in that environment? Valuations contract. And so um, there's a neat chart out there that shows, I don't know if you guys can put it on the screen, but there's a neat chart that shows when inflation sustains at five to 6%, the market trades at a multiple of about 15 times. If it trades a little bit higher than that, the market trades at a multiple of 10 to 15 times. So what we have is a much bigger, much more powerful narrative going on behind the scenes, which is just like we didn't fight the Fed on the way up, we can't fight the Fed now. And what's happening is, as we're tightening, as inflation remains higher than it has been historically, valuations are contracting. So we'll get glimmers of hope and glory when we get a good earnings report here or there, or we get like a nice, you know, data point like we did last week that made people feel relieved for an hour. But the bigger picture says valuations are contracting and that's painful. And it's also unbalanced. So what we'll continue to see is the stocks with with extended multiples, call it north of a market multiple of 19 times, extended multiples, they will continue to contract. They make up a disproportionate mar- amount of the market weight and they will weigh on the market like a wet blanket for some time.
1: Pete, um, Jenny right? The Fed trumps everything? I mean, I don't know. We made this point three, four times over the last couple of weeks. If you tell me don't fight the Fed when they've got the fire hose out of, of liquidity, in the market but then you're telling me well you can fight them on the way on the other way because we know we all know that it's it's coming and it's in the market that doesn't work maybe we're learning that
4: yeah i i think we are slowly uh, not very fast but slowly people i think are, are learning that i think last week i think the most important part of the week and joe just hit it exactly on and this is something we brought up last week was okay peak inflation all right well maybe But that doesn't mean you suddenly just turn and burn to the downside either. And I think a lot of people just expected that, Scott. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is just take a look at what gold looks like over the last week, two weeks. Take a look at all the, the various different commodities that Joe just brought up, and especially Nat Gas, which is now pushing eight bucks. I mean, if you look across the board, you will see that we have continued to sustain, maybe even, let's say, build upon... Some of the inflation products that we all are looking at each and every day, right? Crude oil was 93, now it's a buck 08. I mean, when you go across and you look at just about everything, yeah, there's still inflation. Has it peaked? Uh, maybe it's peaked a little bit, but if it's if it has peaked, that does not mean it doesn't sustain. And I think right now we're seeing that process of that sustaining mechanism that is part of what we're seeing right now. Obviously, that's affecting the markets, and clearly a lot of nervousness about that, and we're seeing that reflected in a lot of the various stocks specifically the nasdaq right now
1: weiss i mean obviously you don't think it's peaked or that rates have peaked because you came in today long the sark which shorts the arc Uh, right so you must think the rates continue to go up multiples especially on higher multiple stocks continue to uh, compress and that those stocks the kathy wood ish stocks continue to go lower
5: That's correct. Nor do I think inflation is the only problem, but let's talk about inflation. If it has peaked, what does that mean? Does that mean the Fed's going to say, just kidding, it's coming our way, so we're not going to tighten? Of course not. We're still in an emergency Fed funds environment, meaning that rates were set when we went into the pandemic and they haven't come up meaningfully. They were set when we went into the housing crisis and have yet to come up meaningfully from there. So, Fed's gonna keep tightening because pure and simple, our balance sheet can't continue to be so upside down. But inflation and the Fed are one problem. And the reason why I bought the, the, the Sark uh, last week is because what also is worrying the market is Putin. What if Putin does use chemical weapons? What if Putin does use supposedly tactical nukes? That's gonna be a pretty bad event for the market. And then, let's talk about earnings. So, earnings will come under pressure. And we've seen what happens when earnings are good. Today, you're getting relief in the banks, but last week, we had good numbers from, from B of A, from uh, rather Goldman, and the stock traded lower. So if that's what happens when earnings are good, what's going to happen when earnings are going to be poor, when margins are under pressure? So the market's not going up. I don't think that was a peak inflation rally. I think that was a bear market rally, and we're still in a bear market. So I would use those rallies, if they're meaningful enough to to sell, liquidate some positions.
1: Joe, I thought earnings were going to save the day. Right? I mean, I keep hearing that earnings are still good and they're they're going to be good. And even though earnings growth is expected to slow, not enough to make a big dent. The economy's so strong. Companies are going to be doing just fine Earnings Earnings are going to be great. Doesn't matter.
2: Revenue growth is also going to be good. But if you're going to get margin compression and that's exactly what you're getting, if you're going to get tepid commentary uh, on a part of a lot of the companies that are reporting, then what you're going to have is that earnings overall that are not going to broadly exceed expectations and I think this earning season is about that you're going to need to see the collective exceed all of the expectations and if you have inconsistencies where you have a bank of America that tells you well lending looks really good but then you have a JP Morgan
1: that's telling you well things look troubling that's not gonna be enough wait so okay so um just good enough is not going to be good enough like a sigh of relief it wasn't as bad as the worst could have been that that's not going to be good enough no there's there's too many headwinds for
2: us right now you've got a technical breakdown uh from last week for the s p 500 where we're now below all the major moving averages in terms of inflation listen if you have a fever and it peaks at 103 and one week later you have a hundred you still have a fever and that's going to remain stubbornly high. It's going to be things like golf balls which trust me I know I lose a lot of them. A glass of wine a trip to the veterinarian. So there's there's this confluence of headwinds. You need some form of a tr- overtly bullish catalyst to elevate beyond that. Where do I find that.
1: I mean Jenny you look even. But Mike Wilson, right, Morgan Stanley, he's been among the most negative strategists on the block. Uh, he says today that earnings aren't going to save the day. But even he thinks that around 4,000 on the S&P is fair value. At least that's what they've been focused on. That's a 10% pullback-ish from, from here. Does it sound reasonable? Could we deal with 10%? from here, and then we sort of see where the landscape sits, see where valuations are, see what the real earnings picture is, what the economy looks like at that given moment, see what the Fed's talking about.
3: I think I think it is reasonable, and I think when we talk about earnings saving the day, it goes back to magnitude of what expectations to the downside are. So, so far, I think it's like 75 or 76 percent of companies that have reported have beat when we say earnings save the day what does that mean does it mean it saves us from being down 20 percent because they actually exceed does it mean it saves the day because we're only going to be down 10 (laughs) percent so i would actually say yeah
1: what if i said that's exactly what it means
3: i think so and so i would say yeah i think earnings will save the day and i think the strong consumer will save the day but that doesn't mean that the market's going to be up 16 percent all it means is we're not going to have a real bear market where we're down 20% because actually underlying all this tightening and all these nasty things, we have, we have a strong economy. We have strong consumers. We have strong corporations. So yeah, earnings will save the day, but that doesn't mean what it used to. It doesn't mean the market's going to rally up 15%. It just means it's not going down as much as it could otherwise.
1: Okay. So our next guest says that. Hey. Yes, Weiss.
5: Sorry, Scott. Yeah, I was just going to say the the talk on the consumer being strong is going to be short lived from here. Not with not gas prices raised going where they are. Not with uh, with oil going where it is, not with prices on clothes and food going where it is, the consumer is not going to be that strong. The consumers going to be fighting to stay alive as a large segment of consumers are right now. Not the 1%, no offense, Joe, that hit golf balls and drink wine, but the ones that want to put food in their table. AND THAT'S THE ISSUE. THE CONSUMER WON'T BE THAT STRONG, AND IT'S A 70% DRIVEN CONSUMER ECONOMY. It may not SO be LET'S a, JUST STOP TALKING may, ABOUT it may, THAT. IT
1: MAY NOT BE AS STRONG, WEISS, BUT IT MAY NOT BE AS WEAK AS, as SOME SUGGEST. I MEAN, let, LET'S NOT FORGET ABOUT WHERE exactly. WAGES HAVE BEEN GOING AS WELL. SO NOT THAT THEY'RE KEEPING UP WITH THE PACE OF uh, BROADER INFLATION ON, SAY, FOOD and, AND STUFF LIKE THAT AND ENERGY, BUT NONETHELESS, RIGHT, I MEAN, that, THAT COULD HAVE AN IMPACT TOO. JENNY, YOU WANTED TO SAY WHAT, AND THEN, we, then WE'RE GOING TO MOVE ON.
3: You took the words out of my mouth, but just take what exactly you said, Scott, and add fifteen trillion dollars of cash burning a hole in consumers' pockets.
1: Yeah, so, so add that to the consumer. It remains time. to be seen as to what degree the the consumer is going to slow down, uh, if at all. Our next guest says the major indices could be setting up for a deeper pullback, and the S and P may may break below four thousand. Let's bring in Jonathan Krinsky, the chief market technician at BTIG so you got it's good to see you, you got to help me figure this out because you you originally were saying yep, yeah, we could go below 4000 but then I felt like you were wavering on that and almost moving away from it and now I feel like I read your note today and here we go again you're calling for a, a break below 4000 is likely on the S&P help me understand that
6: yeah so really what we've had Scott is this as we know bifurcated market you've had defensive. Uh, bond proxies like staples, utilities, um, you know, those, those high dividend paying stocks have been doing extremely well, along with the commodity plays, the inflationary plays. And that's been the relative strength of the market. And then on the other side of the, of the spectrum, you've had um, the high growth names and the deep cyclicals, banks, semis, uh, software, you know, home builders, those, eh, right? And so the strong names have continued to get stronger, but they've gotten to a point now where they just you know, we really can't defend them tactically anymore. When you look historically, they're just so stretched relative to their 200-day moving average. Um, you know, we highlight a name, Archer Daniels Midland. It's been a great name we've liked in the past. It's now 40% above its 200. day. if you go back and look over the last 20 or 30 years, that's about as as extreme as it gets for a name like that. So we're seeing a lot of those defensive names really kind of at the um, the apex of what we would say is their, is their uptrend. But then on the flip side, you're not seeing any... Uh, of the beaten down areas, really able to muster much of a rally. They they have a bounce for a day or two, and then they give it all back. And so, ultimately, that leads us to to the belief that the strong names are are probably going to catch up to the downside to the weaker names, and that's really what gets your final uh, capitulation on the on the index level. So
1: you'd be a seller of some of the defensive names, the staples, utilities, and some of the other areas of the market that have really run S- hot.
6: Selectively, you know, we, we put out a note uh, within the last couple of weeks saying that to sell utilities, um, you know, they haven't come down much, but they also haven't rallied much. And I think, you know, there's there's almost a you can win two ways in, in those sort of names. Right. If if things do improve a little bit, I think people, you know, maybe let up the gas on the defensive plays. Um, and they should underperform dramatically. But, you know, what we think is going to happen, actually, is, you know, if everything kind of gets sold, then, then those defensives ultimately do succumb. And you can see that throughout history, that defensives, you know, people rotate into the defensives for as long as they can. And then at some point, they all kind of come, come in together.
1: So where do we go? I mean, what's I, I read Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley, 4,000. He suggests, and he uses the word, this is a fair value level we have been very focused on. Does that make sense to you? Is that your level too? Somewhere close to that?
6: Yeah, you know, we got pretty close there back in uh, in February, early March. I think when you look at you know the the internals and you know, really, again, we go back to those mega cap tech names. You're going to need to see that. I would also highlight healthcare, right? Healthcare, not talking about biotech, but we're talking about the big you know liquid healthcare names. That's been a an area that's quasi-defensive, actually hit a new high last week, but it's now down 4 or 5%. Healthcare is the second biggest sector in the market. And so, um, you know, I think we're starting to see early signs of that coming to fruition. Um, but, you know, yeah, you're going to need to see those big cap tech names really, really break down a little bit to get that 4,000.
1: We're going to keep it brief today, Krinsky. I appreciate it, but I want to keep things moving. I'll talk to you soon. That's Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG. so Joe. It brings me to you. I'm looking at, Thanks, you know, not defensive areas of the market, clearly, um, but playing offense into where, you know, in, at least at commodities go. I'm looking at two new moves you have, and I'm looking at the fact that both of them hit new 52-week highs today uh, from the ag space, mm-hmm. Nutrien and Bungie. You bought Bungie again, you yes. bought Nutrien. Both stocks hitting 52-week highs today. Both have been on huge runs over the last three months. Both have had huge runs over the last 12 months. Why does it continue for both? Well, first of all, I also
2: own Deer and Archer Daniels Midland, which Jonathan just talked about. The agriculture trade for me right now, while it looks as if you've got incredibly strong momentum, I think this is a trade that will, without question, go parabolic. Um, There is no SPR. There is no cartel for agriculture prices. Directly thinking about the effect of natural gas as a raw material being utilized in a lot of ammonia-based fertilizers, again, that's going to exacerbate the cost. So supplies from Ukraine down 40% so far for both corn and wheat. Domestically, you're seeing plantings in in the U.S. that are challenged also challenged by weather scott i'll tell you whether it's mosaic cf industries which i don't own or the names i bought today Nutriate and bungie i think the exposure to agriculture is one that you have to continue to stay even, with even at I'll these levels to those positions even at these levels even you at, you at are these literally levels buying them at d- their highs absolutely i do not see a resolution on the supply side that is going to be able to see some form of reversal can you get a correction in these names yes you can buying opportunity i am talking about a peak in all of the agriculture names i don't see that fundamentally and that's why i have no problem buying them up here
1: okay good stuff um
2: on a valuation by the way by the way scott on a valuation basis you're not talking about an expensive sector
1: i'm looking at bungie for example that their, their EPS is 13 and a half. Their price to sales is less than a buck. Um, all right, so let's do this. Let's take a quick break. We come back, we talk about Twitter. Why? Because Pete is making a move there, and I want you to know about it. Plus, former CEO Jack Dorsey, he is ripping into the board. We're going to debate the whole thing, and we'll do it next.
0: Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
1: All right. The Twitter saga continues as the board adopts a poison pill. You got Jack Dorsey tweeting criticism of the board. The stock was down. Now it's up nearly 4% as we're still trying to figure out where this is all going, Pete. And you bought Twitter calls out to October. I did. Well, that's a long way out.
4: Yes, sir. It is. It is. And here's, here's why it was so intriguing to me. Obviously, all the news last week, right, Scott? I mean, we were all talking about that. Then there were PE discussions out there about some, certain PE firms that might have interest in maybe a competitive bid. But it was in the afternoon on Thursday going into the long weekend where we saw a big buyer. They bought 10,000 of the October 55 calls in one print. For three dollars and seventy cents, so somebody out there feels like this will get resolved one way or the other. Whomever the bidder is, whether that's somebody else new or is Musk going to maybe team up with, maybe Oracle. Yeah, I mean that that has been some of the talk out there of who would he maybe team up with if he does even indeed team up with somebody else in this acquisition of, of Twitter. It could be pretty interesting. I think a lot of people would be would be very interested in being a part of that whole thing, Scott. And so I bought the calls, but instead I bought the October over 50 calls sold the 55 calls, gives me a little bit more room to the downside, and on the upside, I'm okay capping up what my, my, what my upside would be on that, because I think that the opportunity is there, and the inflated implied volatility of those options because of that the buyers that came in there, gave me the opportunity to put on that position at a very, very low price. So I like what we're seeing there, and obviously Musk, and you and I have talked about this a couple of times now, but Musk is a guy who's very interesting. We never know exactly what his next move is going to be, but it it sure seems to be stirring up the pot right now, and I think there will be other bidders joining in with musk at some point
1: Weiss, you don't buy any of it you don't you don't think this is going to happen at all.
5: I don't buy any of it, and nor am I following somebody in who bought three thousand calls because I have no idea who they are. they could be the biggest dope in the world and and lost ten thousand lost ten thousand calls or something way. else look. Look, look, I I just don't. uh, Doesn't matter to me either. I don't know who they are. So I don't know if they're smart or dumb. I know they got money, but they could also be hedging a short they have in the stock. So look, here's how I look at it. Musk isn't going to buy it. Number one. Number two, the SEC is not done with Musk because he came out. First he filed as a passive investor and then filed as an active investor while he was already having conversations during Spacifier. So they may come out as they were going to once before and said, you know what, you can't be CEO of any public company anymore. What would that do to the bid? I doubt that he would go along. Plus, I don't think there's any value in Twitter for a private equity firm, I may be wrong, or a public firm to acquire it. They've been on the block for years, not for days, not for weeks, not since Musk came in, forever and nobody stepped up so now all of a sudden they're going to step up with the stock inflated based upon Musk's musk's illusory bid I don't think so so I'd rather stay away and find other places to lose money which I'm doing okay at by the way
1: <laughs> Joe yeah, I bet you are what's your what's your perspective here
2: Joe <laughs> my perspective is that if Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter he will and the way that he'll do that is just through the price. How is Twitter going to be able to turn down a price that let's say is above fifty-four twenty? What if he comes in and offers sixty dollars? So I like Pete's strategy because it's focusing on the completion of the transaction. After that, my personal view is that Twitter as a publicly traded company is literally done. Because if Elon Musk buys the company, you're going to disenfranchise. Part of the user base, and if Elon Musk aren't, doesn't buy it, aren't they already disenfranchise feeling, part of the are, user? Aren't base. they already oh, feeling oh, disenfranchised, part of the user base? A hundred percent. But this now just raises it to a, a crescendo. And find find me a publicly traded company that as politically politically divisive as Twitter actually is, and where politics seems to matter. So much to the actual business model. This is, to me, a company that has to be a private company if they're going to increase their free cash flow, which they have no ability to do in the last five to seven years. And to Steve's point, various people have talked about extracting the value. They've been unable to do so. To me, it's just about, okay, where's the final price going to be? And at that point, go off into the sunset, be a private company, and that's the end of knowing. Twitter is a publicly traded company. Okay, Jenny, who's, real quick. Who's going
5: to finance what? the acquisition? Who's who's going to who's going to finance uh, this? I, Nobody. He's not you. financing with his you. Tesla stock, with a SpaceX stock. Now, I think Peter's with more options.
1: No, I mean legit questions because right now there there are very few answers to most of the questions that are out there. Jenny, literally twenty seconds.
3: <laughs> There's something much bigger at play here, which is people want substance and they want cash. A year ago, this stock would have doubled. The game has changed and the playbook is different. So pay attention to what happened here and use it as a lesson for your broader investments.
1: All right, still ahead. Pete's got unusual activity. We'll tell you about the ETFs you need to watch as well. We're back right after this.
0: The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
3: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close?
7: And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. The ETF business has grown by leaps and bounds by packaging plain vanilla indexes like the S&P 500 to investors, along with narrower slices of the markets like cybersecurity, clean energy, cloud computing, and other thematic tech ideas. But now the ETF market is seeking to expand by offering narrow bets on individual stocks. Are you ready for a long and short ETF on just Amazon? How about Apple? How about Nvidia? Let's talk to two of the ETF leaders who are trying to make this happen. Dave Motz is head of product at Direction ETFs. Will Ryan is the CEO of Granite Shares. Dave, in February, you filed for 21 new ETFs, each offering exposure to the daily inverse or leverage returns of a high profile stock. Nvidia, Meta, netflix apple microsoft amazon google how is this going to work and when does the sec need to give a thumbs up or down on your application yeah so thanks bob so let's be clear these funds are not yet available uh for uh for traders today and the way these funds are intended to work are similar to other leverage inverse etfs that provide daily exposure to either an index or in these filings to single stock ETFs and I need to emphasize these tools uh, are really for traders because of that daily reset mechanism so if a trader or investor does not have the ability to monitor their portfolio on a daily basis these particular instruments are not necessarily for them with that being said if they do they're really again intended to function similar to other leverage ETFs to provide amplified exposure both on the upside and on the downside Now, Will, you're at Granite Shares. Uh, You have also filed for a series of leverage and inverse ETFs here, and you already have a suite of these products operating in Europe. I wonder, though, how receptive the SEC is going to be to all this. Uh, The chair there, Gary Gensler, he's already been wary of leverage and inverse ETFs. He says they can pose risks even to sophisticated investors. Um, Can you handicap the odds the SEC will even approve these products? Well, I think, as Dave said, Bob, that um, you know the good news is these products, the structure at least, has been around for many, many years. And people are very comfortable with how these products work. And as you rightly pointed out, we've been running a business similar to this in Europe for the last three years. We offer a suite of short and leveraged uh, products on single stocks. And I have to say that it's been very popular with investors. Now, as Dave said, those investors are more short term. They're more trader. Uh, sophisticated investors by nature, Um, but there are just not many ways to accurately express either uh, short-sided bets or long-sided positions on single stocks, at least as conveniently as in the ETF package. And that's what these products do for people. Well, these applications are pending in front of the SEC. Now, we're going to get much more on this, much more on the future of leverage and inverse single stock ETFs with Dave and Will on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. They'll be joined by Dave Nautic. He's the financial futurist over at ETF Trends. That's coming up. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime. We'll be right back.
8: I'm Christina Parts Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The Boston Marathon is underway this morning. The, pay, the race returning to its regularly scheduled date after two years of COVID-19 disruptions. Taking first place are Danielle Romanchuk for the men's wheelchair race. You've got Manuel Shar for the women's wheelchair race and Evans Chabet for the men's classic. In Michigan, an investigation is underway after a class of kindergartners at Grand River Academy took sips of a ready-to-drink Jose Cuervo margarita drink at snack time. A young girl brought the drink to class to share with her classmates, who said they felt woozy and a little dizzy after having a couple of sips. The school says it's unfortunate that these types of adult beverages can be easily mistaken for child-friendly drinks. And 8 million people from the Appalachians through upstate New York are under winter weather alerts. An unseasonal nor'easter could bring 5 to 10 inches of snow to parts of New York and Pennsylvania. Scott, drinks and snow.
1: Thankfully, that snow is not right around here. I would not Thankfully. be happy camper about that. Christina, thank you. Christina Thanks. Parts and Nevelos. All right, Bank of America, the last of the big banks to report quarterly results. While there have been some bright spots, financials are one of the worst performing sectors. Over the last week. That should tell you a lot. Our Leslie Picker here to tell you more because she's broken down the numbers. Hey, Les.
9: Hey, Scott. Yeah. On the heels of earnings, all six big banks are in the green today. You could see Bank of America firmly in the green there. Although they're firmly lower year to date, it was largely a quarter of beats relative to muted expectations with earnings down double digit percentages for all of those big six. The culprit investment banking, by and large, fees took a major slump during the quarter with IPOs and equity underwriting drying up essentially. Sales and trading held up a bit better with firms like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley reporting Stronger than expected activity. Some of the less volatile businesses, such as wealth management, consumer, held up well, as would be expected during the quarter. Citi, JP Morgan, and Bank of America all saw deposit growth and loan growth, and these businesses should benefit from rising interest rates in the future. However, the cloud that hung over these results was the broader macro backdrop. On his earnings call, Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon warned about the increased risk of stagflation and mixed signals on consumer confidence. Citi's CEO Jane Frazier said the macro outlook for the rest of the year can only be described as, quote, complex and uncertain. And J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon said going forward, there's, quote, almost no chance you won't have volatile markets. Now, contrast that with Bank of America CEO Brian Morgan in a hand this morning. He was a bit more sanguine, though, and said that the strength of the consumer makes this cycle different. Scott.
1: Leslie, I appreciate that. That's Leslie Picker. Steve Weiss, do these earnings reports make you want to own the banks or avoid them? Right. We just said they're one of the worst performers over the last week. They've all reported now. And we're just back to the same place we were before we started.
5: Right. The, the only reason to own these if, is if you believe the yield curve is going to steepen. And that's what I believe, I believe it will. Uh, I'm not sure if there's going to be a recession or not, the way it stands now, I'm leaning towards one, but not because the yield the yield curve is somewhat inverted. Uh, they put up good earnings, it was no surprise to me, and I think to many others, that banking volumes were going to be way down, they were. however. IPOs and secondaries seem to find a price. They need to get out of the gate eventually. So I don't expect that to continue unless the market really, really sells off. So bottom line answer, I own them. I haven't sold them. I'm staying with them. And that's specifically Goldman and B of A, who had great quarters relative to expectations.
1: Now, you said maybe a couple of weeks ago that you were looking at Bank of America, right? Like you're taking a look at it. to to see if you still wanted it in your portfolio, as much as you've raved about Moynihan, as I think I mentioned the very day that we had this conversation last. So what would make you sell it?
5: What would have made me sell it is is, is if they didn't capitalize on the trading environment and if they weren't able to pull other levers out and if their loan growth was negative. So they actually put up pretty good loan growth numbers And think of what will happen as you get a better spread with that yield curve steepening. So if they missed on other areas, in addition to missing on banking, which wasn't their fault, then I may have taken some off the table, but it was also price dependent. And the stock, when you and I spoke, the stock was about 10 percent higher than it is now.
1: Okay. Uh, Joe, you own Bank of America and Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. Same question to you. Do these reports make you want to still own the banks or avoid the banks?
2: makes me want to own the two that I own Morgan Stanley and Bank of America because they were able to perform uh, with trading revenue zero days of trading losses that's that's a pretty good uh, quarter now I wouldn't go out and seek additional exposure in financials and the one bank that I think everyone is looking at right now is JP Morgan and kind of wondering if you don't own it well why not buy it And I think the concern there is And the reason that ultimately at some point I would sell Bank of America and Morgan Stanley is if we in fact begin to see credit losses credit Jamie diamond for going out and building reserves 902 million in reserves to kind of protect against inflation and the war in Ukraine and the potential credit losses but but I think ultimately the path for financial institutions is going to be traced out upon whether we begin to see these credit losses and how much of these banks actually going to have to build and reserve for
1: potential losses. Pete, Mm -hmm. you own bank, you own Goldman, you own U.S. Bank Corp, and you sold calls in Citi and Wells Fargo.
4: Yeah, and and I think what my biggest takeaway was J.P. Morgan just lived up to what we'd been talking about, Scott, which was when you go with what everybody talks about, which is price to book, it was too expensive. It was two times price to book. And, and then you look at Goldman Sachs at one times price to book. And you look at everybody's got exposure at different levels. Some are banks. Some are more, obviously, on the trading side. And that's like Goldman Sachs. Joe's got Morgan Stanley. I like what Goldman Sachs is doing and the fact that they got so cheap. They're about half the value, book value, of Morgan Stanley even, even today as we stand. So that's why I'm in those names. I, I think that they're, they're less expensive names. Bank of America, I compare to J.P. Morgan. I'll put Goldman Sachs up against Morgan. Stanley right now. That's why I've picked what I've got. And I like the regionals to some degree. That's why I've got that U.S. bank exposure as well.
1: Speaking of, Jenny's all about the regionals. New York Community Bank, Umqua Holdings, KB Financial, Nordia Bank.
3: So what I like about the U.S. regional banks in this environment is that in the environment where we're in, where, where Jane Frazier said it is complex and uncertain, you can look at the regional banks, you can look at New York Community Bank, you can look at Umpqua, and you can know exactly what their interest rate exposure is. In the case of Umpqua, they fare well in a rising rate environment. In the case of New York Community, they'll struggle, but once they close the deal with Flagstar, then they become less less um, or they become more immune to rising rates and actually benefit from them. I like that level of granularity. In a complex and uncertain world, I do not want to own the big banks where there's massive uncertainty like you read Bank of America's report and they say oh we had no Russia exposure you read JP Morgan they have Russia exposure Steve to your point where you said you only want to you you only want to own those in a rising rate environment like no they have all these different businesses some some benefit from rising rates some are hurt by rising rates there's too much complexity this is not the environment where you want to own overly complex businesses and that's what all the rest are so stick with your transparent regional banks right now
1: All right, coming up we're going to talk rivian shares they're down 50 percent since going public just back in november phil lebeau got a rare look inside the challenges facing the ev maker we'll talk about how the committee is playing that space plus cnbc is celebrating financial literacy month here's contributor tim seymour with how we can help your our youth prepare for their bright futures ahead
7: young people in this country are our most valuable assets. This is my daughter, Sky, And as a parent and an investor,
2: teaching her how to plan for her financial future and set goals,
10: it's about instilling a value set. And it's about helping her become independent and charting her own path in the world.
1: Well, the challenges continue at Rivian. Shares are down nearly 80% from their 52-week high. It continues to deal with supply chain concerns. Our Phil LeBeau recently got an inside look at the company's production plant in Illinois. Joins us now. What would you find, Phil?
10: Scott, this is a company that's got three assembly lines going right now, and it's all about production. Forget about what people say about whether or not the R1T can be better than the Lightning, the R1S, how it will do against other SUVs. It's about production and how they increase production. So, when we went inside the plant in Normal Illinois, which is in Central Illinois, a couple of things to keep in mind. And this is what Wall Street is focused on right now. Their Q1 production of 1,000 or Q4 of just over 1,000 vehicles increased dramatically in the first quarter, and the guidance of 25,000 vehicles for this year, yes, it's down from what many analysts uh, originally thought and what the company said they could build if they had more parts and components, which leads to the question we asked R.J. Scaringe, the CEO. How comfortable are you right now with the improvement of the supply chain? Here's what he had to say.
2: I'd say, you know, high 90 percent we feel really, really good about. It's the it's a small percentage of parts that are constraining our ramp. And whether those are harnesses or semiconductors, um, those are the areas we're laser focused on to make sure we expand our our supply and do therefore expand how many vehicles we can produce.
10: What they report when they report their Q1 results as well as Q2 deliveries, that really is what's going to move this stock. We've talked about this, guys. There's no shortage of demand. RJ talked about this. They've got 83,000 orders for their vehicles. That extends them through the end of 23. The industry in the U.S. is expected to deliver more than 2.2 million electric vehicles By the end of 25, that'll be the annual sales that's expected by then. And as you take a look at Rivian, Lucid, and Fisker, there is combined, between those three companies, combined, over 131,000 orders. So demand is not the question. It's a question of ramping up production, and for that, you need the chips, you need the harnesses, and a few other things. And then we start to talk about, over the next couple of years, battery supply and battery cell supply. That will be the next challenge, not only for Rivian, but all the EV automakers.
1: Phil, as part of that, the the biggest challenge is the smallest percentage of parts that they need are arguably the most difficult to get. And the ones they may have to wait the longest for, the semis, as you said. I know harnesses are important, too, but come on, let's not kid ourselves. It's all about the semis.
10: No, it is mainly about the semis. There's no doubt about that. And RJ feels more comfortable about that supply for the industry overall. But let's also be clear here. You have heard other auto executives say in the last year, oh, we're going to be fine by the end of the first quarter. Ridiculous. Everybody in the industry admits that this is going to extend into 23. So that is going to be a constraining factor, not just for Rivian, but for all of the automakers. We're seeing a gradual improvement, but it's going to take some time, guys. The pie's just not big enough. You need more foundries building more chips allocating more chips to the auto industry all right good stuff phil thank you that's phil lebeau pete
1: you You know the pain um pretty close right you own rivian calls
4: yeah, yeah, there's no doubt. And there's full pain there, Scott, because those absolutely disintegrated not long after I bought them. I still own them, but they, they're, they're unsellable. Tesla, on the other hand, I, I, you know, it's all about supply chain, right, as you were just talking about with Phil. I think that is the most important key. And you were talking about semis. That's obviously it. And I think that's the advantage at times that Tesla might have. That's why Tesla is not that far off of those highs back in November when it was 1,200 or just this past March where it was 1,100 bucks a share. I still think it has a potential to get there at a very very rapid rate under the right circumstances in the market
1: all right good stuff pete has unusual activity after this quick break don't go anywhere all right pete what you got for unusual today
4: You know, Scott, we started off the day and we were talking about oil and the price movement we've seen there, natural gas. How about uranium? These uranium stocks have been on fire as well. Cameco is one of them. It's been going to 52-week highs, it feels like, almost every day. It was trading around $31 a share today. We had a buyer of 4,000 of the September 32 calls. They also hedged that by selling the 40 calls against that. But it's those 32 calls, they bought 4,000 of those for about $4.60, Scott. Buying a lot of time for this uranium stock to make another new high, hopefully. XBI is the, is the next one. We're talking about the biotech spider. This is interesting because I normally won't go into an ETF, but this one really did capture me. They bought 20,000 of the main 95 calls here for a little over a dollar. What makes this interesting is this is a biotech uh, ETF that actually the largest percentage ownership is a one and underneath the one and a quarter percent so very very diverse when you're looking at this name lastly I'm going to give you nvidia now this one we talk about all the time we see these size buyers walk in 24,000 of the this week's expiring on Friday, the April 22nd expiring, 220 calls were bought today for anywhere, cl- call it somewhere close to $3. So we're seeing a lot of buyers. We were just talking about chips with Rivian, Tesla. This is another one of those biggies, Scott. And we talk about this one all the time as far as automobiles and everything else. That's why I think we're seeing this kind of call activity today in NVIDIA. All
1: right, for I appreciate that, Pete. Thank you. we got Final Trades coming up Thanks. next.
4: Yep
0: are you following the halftime report podcast
5: what are you waiting for real debate and actionable advice from the investment committee plus unusual activity and more look for us in your favorite podcasting app follow the halftime podcast now
1: hope to join me in overtime tonight that man right there tom lee bryn talkington adam parker casey newton alex kantrowitz we're on top of it all But I'll see you with Tom Lee, overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern, just a few hours. Delta got upgraded today to a buy at UBS. The price target goes to 53. Steve Weiss likes it because Steve just recently bought Delta. Right, Steve?
5: I did. It's it's been doing well for me also, and I bought it because I'm doing a lot of traveling. And the planes are packed, the airports are packed, and it's going to be a great summer for airplanes for those who can afford to travel.
1: Okay. Give me a final trade, if you don't mind, Steve.
5: Cash. Just haven't changed my view
1: still have cash okay jenny harrington
3: ibm they're reporting tomorrow but i think it'll be tame 5.2 percent dividend yield trading at 13 times earnings
1: okay uh stock got upgraded last week we're going to see what they deliver pete Nigerian what say you
4: continue to see a- yeah, I continue to see a lot in the energy space. I'm going to give you Energy Transfer, ET. I think this is a name with all that natural gas that Joe and I were talking about earlier in the show. Pipelines everywhere. I think this thing's going higher.
1: I'll tell you, that Nat Gas story uh, is something. It's over 8 bucks as we speak. 8.03, according yeah. yep. to my machine. Joe, I know you've been watching it closely as well. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's not peak inflation. That looks like surging inflation to me. And now... That place is the entire natural gas board all the way out to February of next year above $8. My final trade is One Oak. That's an Oklahoma based natural gas company that I own in Joe T. All
1: right. So we think that it's going to continue to go higher again above eight bucks for Nat gas, Guys, good to see you. I'll see everybody in overtime. Thanks for see. watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern only on CNBC.
3: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.